welcome to Tech Explorations Podcast Episode 1, Part 2. In the previous part of this episode, George Katz introduced himself and talked about his years in university. In this second part, George talks about water rocket hardware. We go through the most important components of a water rocket and the engineering process of finding what works and what doesn't. We also talk about the origins and the evolution of Air Command water rockets. In the next part, which is also the last for the first episode, George talks about his experiences from Thunder 2019, which is Australia's premier rocketry event and about rocketry clubs. Let's continue right where we left off in part one. So <laughs> let's talk about hardware for the next few minutes. So uh, eventually, you said about 13 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. you saw the Mythbusters episode about uh, water rockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you remember what is it that they were trying to debunk in that episode? Uh I think they were trying to launch a guy, so big water rockets strapped to his his back. Uh, There was some, I think, viral video that showed some guy getting launched a long way across the water, uh, and so they tried replicating that with with their dummy and kind of just flipped over. And they had referenced some other water rockets uh, at the time, and so I thought, oh, this this looks pretty good. So they Um, used uh, a buster for that? I guess they didn't use... One of the humans, right? <laughs> yeah. For we um, Buster. So the, we weren't um, quite ready to use a human. The crush, the crush dummy. Buster, yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what was the verdict? Uh, was that kind uh, of it launch? failed spectacularly. It he failed. just kind of flipped, uh, did a somersault, and uh, so it was nowhere near. So uh, they basically came to the conclusion that that viral video was faked, that there's no okay. way that they could have launched Dotted. someone like that. Fake news. Uh, but that was enough for you to... Uh, like get hooked into water uh, that's rockets. Right. And really what hooked us was that, that launching that first bottle uh, by itself, just the amount of performance you got out of this thing that, you know, has been sitting in your fridge for the last couple of days <laughs> and, and a bit of compressed air. And um, yeah, and that, that's really that's really what what hooked us in. Okay, let's, let's talk about then your first water rocket, which is probably the first water rocket for a lot of people. Right, and uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've launched one of those. I think it was um, a Coke bottle. Yep, and we still continue to launch those ones to this day as well. Even single bottle ones are yeah. still great fun. Um, so what's the principle behind a... A water a, rocket? A, a, like a simple water. I guess the principle is the same for all of them, but let's talk about uh, this one, AC1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's actually the photo of that very first launch. We launched it horizontally. We didn't want it <laughs> launching into the next door neighbor's yard. Of course, um, controlled. And so the, the, the principle of water rockets is you're trying to um, expel a reactive mass in one direction so that the rocket flies in the other direction. Um, now, if you just used air, you can compress air that can store lots of energy but because of its a low molecular weight, it doesn't have a lot of mass to throw in one direction, so the rocket yeah. doesn't perform as well. Um, so we use water to provide that reactive mass, but you can't squeeze water. It's almost incompressible, mm. so you can't store a lot of energy in it. And so you kind of uh, find the balance between storing uh, energy in the air versus the amount of reactive mass that you can carry. And it, for water rockets, that turns out to be about a third full, so 
of the mm. capacity of the bottle, a third of it needs to be water and two thirds air. And that gives kind of the optimal performance, regardless of the size of that water rocket. That percentage changes a little bit depending on what you're trying to do, um, what your nozzle size is and what sort of- The uh, enclosure, I guess, whether it's a plastic bottle or maybe use other materials as well. Uh, yep. So ultimately, you're trying to squeeze the air as much as possible, but plastic bottles will burst at a certain pressure. Yeah. So you can reinforce them uh, so that they can hold more pressure, but reinforcing them uh, gives you uh, introduces more weight, which affects the performance in a negative way. So it's always uh, this sort of balancing act. You, you're trying to manage um, probably six or seven different factors to get the most performance out of your rocket. Um, so a nozzle size affects how fast the rocket will fly. Um, but then yeah. if you try and fly too fast, you're inducing more drag, which also affects the rocket in a negative way. So yeah, the, it, it's, and that's really what's interested us all this time. It's that engineering challenge of, mm. you know, pushing materials to their limits to see what you can achieve with, uh, this, with just uh, water and air. There's a lot of engineering in here, but I wonder, like, in terms of, uh, the science behind it as well. Is it possible to create formulas that you know you can plug in parameters like the, have the capacity of a container, its uh, material, um, uh, its absolutely. shape, and then and there, it will tell there, you what. There, yep. there are simulations that people have created um, that uh, most water rocketeers use to try and um, evaluate the performance of their rocket before they launch it. Uh, and the maths actually gets very complex behind water rockets. It doesn't seem like uh, it is, but because everything's changing as soon as you launch the rocket, the pressure's dropping, the amount oh, of water. dynamic system, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's, um, it's, you sort of, it's not something you can just have a formula on hand that you, you could just fill in. Um, there's a guy called Dean Wheeler um, many, many years ago. He was into water rockets and he's created a, a really detailed mathematics analysis of water rockets uh, and he created a, a very good simulator that we use to this day uh, that's very accurate uh, predicts all the little subtle things that you see in the thrust curves and so yeah it's way above my head <laughs> all the maths that goes uh, into this but uh, i'm just happy to use the simulations uh, i think i think i found uh, a reference here that's the one yep uh, is using a flash plugin, so I won't be able to show you the simulation. But this is this is the website, and uh, it's got a pumpkin if, rocket. If you if you have a look down physics and maths, and where it says thrust equations, yeah. uh, that one, and so there's a full paper yeah, thrustequations.pdf. <laughs> yes, well, um, and very very detailed analysis. So if anyone's interested in the mathematics behind, uh, this is definitely the go-to place to go. There's um, the science. Oh wow, look at that. Uh, teachers uh, pay attention here. <laughs> this is like, uh, yeah. what kid wouldn't like love a lesson like this? Hey yeah. kids, well, today like we're I said, the, do... the maths in this is way above by level. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, some. Uh, there's complex, once you get down into it, there's very <laughs> complex yeah. uh, equations. There you go. <laughs> no problem. But, but he, he does a really good <laughs> thorough analysis of uh, how the air behaves. When it cools, you're going to get condensate air con condensating, which uses up some energy and sort of really, really um, detailed model. 
And as a result, his simulator does very good predictions of, of flights. Um, uh, yeah, this, uh... we, we find probably within 5% of what we see in the real world is what his simulations are. So predict. very precise, yeah. Uh, I wish those images would work here. The thrust curve, I think those are some broken links. But anyway, no problem, we get the idea. Um, so uh, back back to the picture here that we're looking at. So this is your first launch. There's the mm -hmm. rocket on its way to your pool, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. And then you've got uh, a launching pad, a horizontal launcher. Yep. Okay, this device here, right? So yep. the bottle is resting up the top. Yep. And so what we use, we the nozzle was built out of a garden hose attachment, the thing that goes mm -hmm. onto your garden tap. Uh, yes, and the release right. mechanism was the other end of a hose. So we fed the compressed air in through the garden hose. And then we just pulled back, once it was pressurized, we just pulled back on that collar to release the, the nozzle. Yeah. Um, and we continue to use that system to, to this day. It's very effective, very simple. So if you have a garden hose with that attachment that you use like for the like the gardening um, pistol, I guess, I'm not sure mm -hmm. how to call that, uh, then you can apply it to uh, to a water rocket and um, have a go horizontally, of course, if you're doing it in your backyard. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So I guess things like the, the shape of the bottle as well or aerodynamics, do those matter, at least in smaller rockets? Uh, yep, very important. Yeah. Um, so one of the probably the most important things is to make sure that that rocket is stable, so it flies mm. like a dart or a, or an arrow. Um, so you need some sort of fins and typically a nose weight on the front of the rocket. So the same way a dart uh, has. Uh, so these were some of the very early uh, rockets where we made uh, ring fins at the bottom. Uh, so these had no parachutes; they just basically came down nose first and bounced, they had a soft nose cone. Um, so what kind of bottle is this? Oh, this is a two litre bottle. Uh, is it specialised or specially made no, no, to be a rocket? Just, or just like a regular, we, we, take, we cut another piece of a bottle for the nose cone, we glue that on, yeah. tape that on top. So this improves the aerodynamics? Or it doesn't um, do something else? Yep, that improves the aerodynamics and also helps uh, protect the bottle when it actually lands. So a rocket like this went uh, probably 250 feet or so mm. um, at, you know, fairly low pressures, maybe 60, 70 PSI. And, and we, uh, we were really lazy, so we used scuba tanks, uh, both Dad and I <laughs> this scuba, is scuba divers. And so we had is, access yeah. to uh, lots of free air. <laughs> So here's your scuba diving tank. Uh, you mm -hmm. use it to pressurize the bottle. So yep. I guess you just open up the uh, the valve here. Yep. And so that's a pressure regulator valve, so we can dial in what pressure we need. Okay. So you can be precise and can measure the optimal mm -hmm. pressure without breaking the bottle. And you've got those metal rods on the sides just to keep it upright. That's right? exactly and right. Constraint so it doesn't fall over. Uh, we, we, we've had that happen where the sort of when before we had those you sort of pressurize start pressurizing it the whole thing would tip over then you'd run in all directions yeah. because <laughs> now you've got a pressurized Dick rocket pointing at you so you learn through those things yeah. uh yeah learn by mistakes is usually a learn the hard way is the best way uh, yep. so never make the same mistake twice uh, and did, did you uh, put this rig together yourself? Is it like yeah. your construction? So, so I guess part of the, the whole water rocket hobby is 
trying to make things sort of from everyday materials. So whatever you come across, uh, that's kind of part of the challenge. Uh, but yeah, so with rocket development came also launcher development. So yeah. the launches improved over time. Um, Great. So this was uh, 2006, right? And then yep. uh, got to uh, AC3. <laughs> what's, what's AC? <laughs> Uh, Air Command. So this was before oh, yeah. we started okay. naming our rockets. This was kind of very, very, very early. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so th this this one used air brakes. We wanted to see what would happen if uh, you could open air brakes. Failed miserably, didn't work. What, what's an air brake? Uh, so it had these sort of plastic tabs that would open up after the rocket would tip over at Apogee. So instead of a parachute, these air brakes would deploy oh, and slow the rocket slow down. down. Never worked. <laughs> so parachute's still the best way to recover the uh, vehicle? Yes, yeah. yeah. So this had a soft nose going, but uh, yeah, they uh, slowly started to become sophisticated. Um, these ones that you're looking at, that was kind of a collection. We would just grab any old bottles and start trying everything. Now, one of, one of the things that's really important is you've got to use bottles for carbonated drinks, uh, ones for like still water. They're not meant uh, designed to handle the pressure, so they'll blow it at much oh, lower pressure. Oh, I see. See, well, that's a good clue. Yeah. Uh, again, we found that out the hard way. <laughs> so, yeah, well, some I of never thought of that. Very early. So they're not the same bottles. So when you buy a bottle that contains just still water, uh, the plastic and the shape that the manufacturers um, use is okay it, for uh, uh, non-pressurized drink. Correct. Correct. If you have so coke, it's probably uh, either a cheaper plastic or thinner walls or. Yeah. Huh. Um, they can save a few, you know, half a cent on, on each bottle. It's worth it. A bit it later. Yeah, there you go. No, I didn't realize that. So I, I just want to uh, fast forward to your yep. more recent designs, because then I also want to talk to you about your experience in Queensland, where you had uh, your, you broke a new height record with one of your rockets. So we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But let's have a look at... Um, some of your... So the, the, these ones started using... So the next step was to try and uh, glue bottles together. Uh, that gives you more volume and therefore big, you can store bigger, more right? energy. Uh, yep. So that, that one was two bottles. Uh, oh. No, sorry. That, that was okay. the next one. This was our first one that where we put a camera on board. So we had an onboard camera. camera. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that could record, I think, like 320 by 200 pixels for like 30 seconds. That was the max. But that was the lightest camera we could get. Uh, so so, um, it. so what, what I'm looking at here is two bottles stuck together. It yep. seems like the top part is like the payload. It, it, that's exactly right. So we've yeah. got the parachute on top, uh, right. then the payload really padded. We didn't want to destroy the camera. Yeah. Uh, and then a single bottle at the bottom. So uh, you, oh, you got, uh, how, how high did this rocket get? Uh, this uh, could have been like 300 feet or so. 300 meters. So you got a good view out of the camera. Uh, 300 feet. So about 100 feet. meters. 100, okay. So you could see a bit past the neighborhood. We, we could see around the neighborhood. We could <laughs> see the ocean, which we hadn't seen from that location before. So that, that was good fun. Well, uh, I have, uh, I've gone into eBay and I found, I think they're called keychain cameras. Mm -hmm. um, actually, hold on a second. I'll show you. Yep. Yep. So they look like this. Mm -hmm. Hang on, I'll, I'll just zoom in. Okay, there you go. 
So they look like this. I put it in shrink wrapping and okay. my plan is to wrap it or somehow I stick it onto my rocket when I come over and uh, launch it for the first time. And I got this for five bucks and it's a thing at 600 and... 640, 640 I don't remember. It, it may actually be HD with audio, but okay. it's very light. It's got its own battery on it. Um, and you took the case off? the. Yeah, I removed the, it because it was like, a keychain. It, it had yep. like a, a, brace, a bracelet uh, like for your cheek, uh, a ring for your keychain. I removed mm -hmm. all that because it was also bulky. Uh, that, and non this is pretty enough. much what we still use, these kinds yeah. of cameras. <laughs> So we'll see how it works, but it's amazing what you can get uh, these days when it comes to this Very technology. Cheap, yep. So you can attach that here. Um, I'm going to point mine downwards because I want to see the fumes coming out of my rocket and uh, the <laughs> ground disappearing. <laughs> Best way to do it. Best yeah. Do it. So awesome. This is really nice. So then the other one you were talking about, uh, where you connect two bottles to increase the capacity, would this one be one of them? Uh, we I can't see... Oh, sorry. Let me uh, share my screen again. Yeah, so this was our very first one where we joined two bottles together. Um, so we had one on top to get more capacity. Yeah. Um, so I guess here you need to be very careful how you join them, right? You don't want uh, leaks. That, that, that's the biggest challenge. Is uh, These were actually screwed together with a bolt with a hole in the middle, I think at about a five millimeter hole. Uh, not terribly effective, but it was better than a single bottle. Uh, this is what's known as a Robinson coupling. So a guy uh, many years ago developed these called Robinson couplings. So the um, technique of how to do this. Uh, how to join bottles base yeah. to base. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that certainly helped with the performance. But the parachute on top was still relying on just falling off at apogee. So when, when the rocket slowed down enough, when it got to the maximum height, that top nose cone would just slip off and the parachute would fall out. How About did you six... detect that? It was, is it some kind of force that develops or n No, that's emotion? the problem. It was probably 60% effective. Right. So not, not terribly reliable. Um, because um, in the, the few things I know about uh, gunpowder type rockets, mm -hmm. um, the solid propellant one. Solid, yeah, that's the term. Solid propellant is that they've got uh, a burner inside the engine that it's a timer essentially, and based yep. on the timer, it will ignite another small uh, ejection charge. Yep. Yeah, another small charge which will boost the parachute out, and that's yep. how it's deployed. So it's time based. Where this one didn't have that. Features. No, th so th these were very basic, uh, and yeah, half the time they would crash, and so we'd have to rebuild. That's why you needed uh, and so a lab. Was pretty soon after that, we thought, okay, well, we better put some kind of a timer on there. And yeah. so, having the electronics background, it was very easy to build a timer-based, uh, a little electronic timer that activated a little servo motor that would then deploy the parachute. Yeah, okay. And that—that's yeah. really from this point on is where we started using them. So then to make that reliable, you use the timer uh, that's, um, so the timer would start counting down, I guess, at launch. As soon as you launched. So you would arm it while it was on the pad uh, and the timer would detect launch. And typically it was either a G switch or a bit of a string, uh, uh, sorry, a yeah. bit of a spring on a contact. So as soon as it experienced acceleration, that spring would bend and 
make contact and start the timer. Uh, and then you would use the simulators uh, to predict how long it would take to get to Apogee to give oh. you that time. And then you'd set your time based on that. And if it's plus or minus a second or two, it does, it's, it's not okay. critical. Yeah, but it will go, it will be deployed. Yep. Um, and here I'm looking at one of your <laughs> one impressive designs. So. Very, very early one, yeah, just <laughs> lots, lots of gaffer tape. No, no, no <laughs> this is pro proper, proper rocket engineering. Oh, it's a proper one. <laughs> so you've got uh, lots of duct tape, you've got fins here to stabilize it. Yep. Yeah, so um, so here the rockets are starting to become a bit more involved. Uh, we've got several uh, several bottles joined together now. Um, so you just so, use the same technique, or is there a different technique? Uh, same, te here? same technique, and later on, uh, th there's a different technique called splicing, where you actually glue the you cut the bottoms off the bottles and you glue the bottles uh, together um, using a special glue, and that's definitely a much more effective um, yeah. way to join them. You get much more performance out of it. Ooh. So this is the J4Y. And this was uh, John, my youngest son, had turned four years old, so we named this rocket after him. <laughs> so you've got all the specifications yes. here. Yep. Uh, um, three bottles. So as we went through different variants um, and tested different things, we would record how much it weighed and how much water it needed. And, yeah. Um, the, the one on the left that you see, this was, uh, I think this was Graviton. See the colored parts of the payload? Uh, those were actually M&Ms, mm -hmm. and we were trying to see what M&Ms do in microgravity. So when you <laughs> shot this, we had a camera at the top looking down at the M&Ms, and so when the rocket would um, slow down near Apogee, everything is essentially in zero G, and so you'd yeah. see these M&Ms floating around inside <laughs> the rocket. Um, and and that, that was one of the things we, we've always enjoyed is putting in sort of interesting payloads and seeing how things behave. And yeah. a lot of the time, things might be counterintuitive to what you might think should be happening on a rocket. Um, people will design deployment mechanisms thinking that if the rocket tips over because gravity points a particular way, um, they can activate a mechanism. But pretty much after yeah. the rocket burns out, you're in negative G all the way to the ground. You never notice that you pass Free through fall. Apogee. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, some of the experiments we do um, explain that uh, to people, you know, how they behave, that you can't rely on that. So but I guess if you install some sensors, you'll be able to, to even in real time, see how your rocket is doing and what kind of forces mm -hmm. uh, apply on on the rocket and then um, analyze it that way. You just analyze the data instead of... Um, yep, yeah. so you can fly you know, accelerometers on it, barometers, uh, barometric sensors, um, yeah, magnetometers so that it tells you mm. which direction, uh, it's how the rocket is spinning in relation to the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, there have been even Apogee detectors developed. They're called uh, magnetic Apogee detectors. And when the rocket launches, it'll sense the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. And mm. when the rocket tips over at Apogee, it senses the reversal of that field and can open the parachute. Right, because you can't use the G-forces. You can't use um, like mechanical forces to detect correct. the movement. Correct, correct. So you need to use um, magnetism then, and uh, a compass would help you in that. This is very interesting. So that's, um, that's how... like. You can use engineering to show to, not say young students, but people in general, how our sensors 
how we expect things might work out don't because we exactly. are just not familiar with the with the the, the context of uh, a rocket that is in flight. A typical sensor would be like a mercury switch. So people will mount a mercury switch inside of their rocket thinking when, when it tips yeah. over, we're going to see that mercury move. And one of the uh, experiment payloads we flew were uh, mercury switches and we had a detailed camera showing the behavior of those switches in relation to the rest of the flight, how they activate very soon after burnout and don't activate at Apogee. And um, so it was quite interesting to see how, how those behave. Um, and hopefully yeah. educates people not to uh, follow that path. Yeah, follow the data, not your intuition when it comes yep. to uh, science and engineering. Uh, there's another little detail here, uh, mm -hmm. dual parachute deploy mechanism. So we had a little parachute that pulled out a much bigger parachute. So we didn't need to have a, um, uh, a, a massive mechanism to get a big parachute out. You just pulled out a little um, So primary is the little one, yep. right? Yep. And the secondary is the big one. Yeah, and all, yeah. all it had was a, a, the string running behind the, the big parachute. So yeah, when, as soon as the small one would open, it would provide enough force to pull the big one out. And then so it just so. pulls it out. You've yep. routed the blue string behind the secondary parachute. It just pulls it out. Pulled it out, yeah. yeah. So, so you're always trying to look for, you know, the simplest ways of achieving things yeah. which tend to be more reliable string uh, not always but well practice makes perfect and um, yeah so from this point on we've really been using uh, electronic timers um, for for getting our parachutes out so yeah look at that this is uh, so you're getting very sophisticated here and yeah. so this one had sorry. boosters on the side so it would help get the rocket up to speed uh, and Are these the main... like independent uh, right, boosters? so th those would fall off uh, when they've spent their um, their energy. They would just um, the, basically you had these tubes on the main rocket and these pins pointing up uh, in the boosters. And because the boosters produced more thrust than the main stage, uh, when you launch the whole thing, the boosters would keep themselves in place. Oh, and then as soon as they stopped producing thrust, they would just slide out out of the right. tubes well, at, so at the most optimal time. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so a, you didn't it, go ahead. So you uh, like that, um, uh, that uh, how would you call it? Like um, attachment mechanism means that you don't need to worry about any complicated um, mechanisms to separate the side boosters from the main body. Exactly, Just, you didn't need to have sensors when they stop yeah. producing thrust. It's kind of all self-regulating. So. And if one booster was producing slightly more thrust than another, then it would uh, drop off slightly later. Um, so as soon as it, it was done doing what it needed to do, it would fall off by itself. Um, and it's, in terms of directionality, you just need to be, I guess, very careful and precise with the pressure inside the bottles so that it eventually would go straight up instead of moving uh, to the side. Yeah, well... <laughs> Really we, we've had all, all sorts of failures. We went through that. Um, all of the uh, uh, boosters are uh, connected to, to the same manifold, so they all end up with the same pressure. Uh, we found yeah. early if we didn't, if we just connected the nozzles directly, if one booster got slightly more air in it, 
it would start transferring the water through the manifold into the other boosters. Hmm. Uh, and so we had to end up solving that problem by running tubes up through the nozzles above the water so the pressures could equalize themselves, but the water wasn't right, transferred. Right. Uh, again, you, you don't discover that until you actually build it. And then... Yeah, uh, so true. Like you've got to try these things. That's where like, a lot in engineering is like theory and practice are two different things. And mm -hmm. uh, you may have a great idea about something, but until you actually do it, you just don't really know if it's a reasonable one. Uh, I've solved a lot of problems, theoretically. Then <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, when it comes to, to practice, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, other totally. factors will often crop up that yeah, uh, totally we've blown different. up a few rockets, uh, quite a few rockets actually, um, just exceeded the... Um, the tachyon, it sounds like... Um, Star Trek reference. <laughs> yeah, so, so we actually based a lot of the names of our rockets on subatomic particles. We needed some <laughs> kind of a unique name, so that, that's what we, we ended up going with. So are these your designs? Yes. yes. So uh, although they're, they're very similar to what other water rocketeers uh, have done. So there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas about how, how things are done. The Robinson couplings weren't, weren't our ideas. The... Uh, garden hose nozzles weren't our ideas hmm. uh, but what we've always tried doing was uh, building modular rockets so if we damage a part of it you can just unscrew it oh, put yeah. another bit on and um, you've got the electronics up here so you've got a flood computer yep hmm. so what's in here uh, so this was basically uh, measuring, that was a timer, but it was also programmable. So you could program servo motor positions where the motor starts and ends. Um, and it was also going to be doing uh, barometric logging, uh, although mm. this particular one, we never ended up doing that. Um, yeah. That would come later. Yeah. Um, are, are their flight computers designed for water rockets particularly, or um, can you build one that, That's a really good question. There are um, lots and lots of flight computers for uh, model rockets. Yeah. And recently I've seen some adaptations of those for water rockets to try and sense um, when the rocket launches and it's got a different set of criteria for detecting because water rockets can uh, sometimes lift off fairly slowly depending on mm. what kind of rocket you're doing. So they've been modified with water rockets in mind, but typically you can use most model rocket flight computers, commercial yeah. ones in, on water rockets as well. Uh, and okay. altimeters now we exclusively buy commercial ones. There's, you can develop your own. There are, you know, Spark Fun will sell you uh, barometric sensors that are easy to connect to an Arduino yeah, type I've thing. Yeah, those. Yeah. But you'd need to calibrate it. It's much easier to just buy a commercial one uh, that's already calibrated, designed for the job. Yeah, at least to begin with, uh, because I'm very interested. Like with my rocket, I'm looking around for uh, data. Like I really want to. Uh, to measure what's going on in the rocket during its flight and then to be able to visualize it and get the kids to have a look at it and you know, uh, analyze what's happening here, what's happening there. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be the first step. Uh, so I'd be very interested in, in a off-the-shelf um, flight computer. And I know that because I've been playing around with quadcopters and drones in general, those are very common devices and easy device and, and mm -hmm. cheap, right? But um, it's a different story when it comes to rocketry because of the Right, and, and so it de depends on the sort of hardware that you get, uh, depends on the p 
performance of your rocket. So if you've got a really high acceleration rocket and you want to measure acceleration, you'll need uh, a flight computer with the right kinds of sensors that might be able to yeah. sense up to, you yeah. know, 50G, um, whereas some of the cheaper <laughs> ones might be 20G or um, have limits. Um, yeah. so, so you'd saturate those sensors. Exactly. So the, there's the differences, uh, just yeah. the G-forces are so different. Yeah. The accelerations um, and a lot of the times these uh, if you're going, going supersonic um, a lot of them will have uh, be able to deal with the shock waves um, as they sort of move down the rocket as you go transonic uh, that can affect some uh, some sensors as well so they have filters to specifically filter that hmm. out yes another thing I hadn't realized is that these rockets especially the uh, solid uh, boosters uh, ones can go supersonic Mm -hmm. Well, when we are playing around with drones, that like it's like too far to worry about. Like it's not. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Not even when it crashes, it won't go supersonic. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got. Um, yeah, I can see your tutorials here. You've got the beginner stuff, <laughs> all the way to like, yeah, quite elaborate and advanced uh, tutorials. So I encourage anyone to have a look at those and uh, you know, start tinkering with water rockets. That's all for episode one, part two. Don't forget to listen to part three of George's interview where he talks about his experiences from Thunder 2019, Australia's premier rocketry event and about rocketry clubs. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with George are available on our website techexplorations.com. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a gold mine of information in the notes. This podcast was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a maker to be our guest? And of course, you can nominate yourself. Please email us at podcast at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Tech Explorations. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.